postpartum body odor. It is a totally natural phenomenon because your body chemistry changes after giving birth. And so sometimes that means that what worked before is no longer effective. But I am excited to say that now there is a solution for that stubborn odor. The Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is a completely natural deodorant made by a postpartum mom who went through it herself. And it works by eliminating and preventing bacterial body odor without covering up your skin's comforting smell to your baby while giving you 12 hours of odor control. And let me tell you, it actually works. Here at the house, we've all been trying it and loving it. Now, before you think, ew, you're sharing a deodorant with your husband and daughter, let me explain that this full-body deodorant comes in a convenient pump applicator that lets you apply it anywhere on your body with no bacteria traveling on the deodorant, so no ew involved. We also love that the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant has a delightful natural scent of USDA certified organic extracts that smell like a pink sugar cookie with lemon frosting. I thought this would be a little strange, but it's actually amazing. Also, the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is free from artificial fragrances and any kind of senoestrogens or herbs that can interfere with breastfeeding. Find your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant at postpartumdeodorant.com. That's postpartumdeodorant.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off through the month of May. Get your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant now at postpartumdeodorant.com and start smelling more like yourself again. Pregnancy and postpartum are some of the most nutritionally demanding times of your life, which makes sense because you're basically acting as your baby's pantry while pregnant or nursing. That's why the quality of your prenatal supplements is so vitally important. Hands down, the one I recommend is needed. So I'm thrilled to say that if you use the code BIRTHFUL at thisisneeded.com, you can get 20% off your first month of needed products. Needed is the number one nutrition brand recommended and used by me and over 4,000 practitioners from nutritionists to midwives, functional medicine doctors, and OBGYNs. Needed is for anyone trying to conceive, pregnant, postpartum, and really, this is goodness you can use even before and beyond the perinatal years. Along with prenatals, Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support to a lactation support plan, a stress and sleep support plan, and a gut health plan. In fact, I've had clients rave about Needed's pre and probiotic formula, saying how much better it made them feel compared to their usual probiotics. And to me, Needed's hydration support packets, which only have ingredients you can pronounce, are a must in any doula or hospital bag. Also, Needed's prenatal multi is available in capsules and easy-to-take vanilla powder for those with nausea or pill fatigue. Head over to thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. Welcome to Birthful Mighty Pair or Parent-to-Be. As always, I'm Adriana Lozada, and as we chug right along with our movement and body wellness series, today we're going to have a birth story courtesy of Anya Cutler. And when Anya reached out saying that she wanted to share her story, I was delighted to make it happen because Anya had a vaginal breech birth. And if you listen to my conversation with Dr. Elliot Berlin, you know how rare vaginal breech birth has become since fewer and fewer providers have the necessary skills, even though the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, so ACOG, they have an updated committee opinion from 2018 that says that, quote, planned vaginal delivery of a term singleton breech fetus may be reasonable under hospital-specific protocol guidelines for eligibility and labor management. 
the decision regarding the mode of delivery should consider patient wishes and the experience of the healthcare provider, end quote. And then also the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada and the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and that's the UK version, they all have similar positions. So really, the biggest issue is the lack of skilled providers. And because expertise around vaginal breach deliveries is so low, this often means that people don't have much of a choice and end up with a cesarean. That ends up being their only choice. Fortunately for Anya, there were several doctors experienced in vaginal breach birth near where she lived. And so as you will hear, she was encouraged and very well supported in her choice. During our conversation, Anya said that when she was fully dilated or close to it, her OB gave her paracervical blocks, which is an anesthetic to take the edge off the contractions. And that is something that I was not familiar with at all. So, of course, I did a little bit of research and found out that these are not necessarily connected to the breech delivery, but rather a more old school option of pain relief that is very rarely done now since epidurals have taken over and is seen as, quote, more effective. And one of the reasons for that is that Paracervical blocks only last for an hour or two, where if you have an epidural that is working well, you kind of set it and forget it. So yeah, paracervical blocks are not commonly done, but since Anya's OB was definitely old school, he knew how to do them, and so they were a pain option for Anya, and she really enjoyed it. I found it so interesting to hear her share the pros and cons of that experience. I also added a couple of links to the show notes about this practice in case you want to know more. Oh, and you may also remember that I briefly mentioned in Dr. Elliot Berlin's episode that I had an external cephalic version during my pregnancy. Well, since we were talking about breech babies again in this episode, the topic of external versions came up. And so this time you're really going to get all the details of that experience. You're listening to Birthful, here to inform your intuition. Anya, welcome to the show. I am so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. So take us back to when you first Mm -hmm. found out you were pregnant and you were thinking about, oh my gosh, I'm going to give birth. What was your attitude towards birth and what were you hoping for this experience? Yeah, so I think I treated birth and pregnancy and parenting like I I the only way I knew how which was just to study it intensively <laughs> and uh, I think you know while I superficially understood that it's a process that's out of our control for the most part I felt like if I could just read all the books then I could still control it so I I read like everything I could get my hands on when we got pregnant and I had you know I think for the last few years, as I learned more and more about uh, the birth worlds and modern birthing, I was I was interested in some alternatives to uh, just the sort of standard medical model of um, hospital births, particularly with the really high C-section rates. And because I am a researcher, I did um, a fair amount of reproductive epidemiology research as a student. And then just in my own sort of personal exploration, read a lot of work on on cesarean sections and risks associated with those and, you know, why it is that that C-section rates are so high. And I just I was looking for something um, that would I felt would be medically safe, but still let me sort of birth the way that I think I I should be able to and and the way that my body is evolved to do. So, you know, I was looking at the birth center that's in Atlanta that's run um, by midwives as sort of my ideal birth setup. And I originally started in in the hospital really just for sort of insurance reasons and they had all the fancy technology to get the best of the ultrasounds and the clearest images of my tiny little fetus. And then I transferred to the birth center at 20 weeks. So I was really planning on um, an unmedicated vaginal birth in the birth center. 
with midwives and and wanted, you know, lots and lots of time to just let labor happen the way it was going to happen and, you know, let my body push the way it wanted to push. That was the, the goal. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, because you dove deep and read so many books, were there any that stand out as your favorite? Yeah, you know, it was it was interesting. I was sort of expecting to really like uh, like Ina May's books and the more sort of crunchy birthing from within kinds of books. Um, but what I found with those was it actually made me feel like if I didn't get the birth that they talk about the the unmedicated vaginal birth that I would really feel like I couldn't do what my body was meant to do and that I was somehow sort of a, you know a failure or a disappointment and and I I know that's not what they're trying to do it's very much supposed to be like a you know empowering all of those books are supposed to be very empowering um, but I found them for me personally to do the opposite because what I really wanted was just like direct information about all the different techniques available and what risks and benefits are of all of those without any sort of bias to one direction. So I actually found just like the straight, you know, Mayo guide to pregnancy um, to be the best for me personally. Mm -hmm. And I had the Mm -hmm. Mayo guide to pregnancy and that was, I found it was very much like Nuggets of information. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that's really, that's what I wanted. And I mean, same for, for breastfeeding. The one that I liked the best was Latch, which I learned about Rob, um, Robin Kaplan's book that I learned about through this podcast, um, because I felt like it was just so well laid out and to the point and non-judgmental. I really liked her book a lot. Oh, awesome. Um, I'll link it. Yeah. I'll link in the show notes and uh, mm-hmm. her episode too. Yes. I'm so happy she wrote that book. Yeah, it's a great one. So then you were set up to do unmedicated vaginal birth with all the ample time for laboring and pushing however you want in a birth Mm -hmm. center with midwives. And you were reading all the books and reading about breastfeeding Mm -hmm. as well. What else were you doing? Um, So I was uh, staying very active. I think that was one of the most important things for me. I walk my dog extensively every day. So I think just staying on top of that and continuing to get outside was really important for me to be able to enjoy being pregnant because as my body changed and I became less able to physically do the things that I was used to doing, that became more and more difficult. So um, I did prenatal yoga. I jogged through um, second trimester and then switched to just walking a lot. And yeah, and those were the main things other than just sort of reading, reading everything. And so then you're getting further along. Was your baby always breached or was it a big turn? Towards <sighs> the end? What, how, how did that happen? <laughs> we don't. Yeah, it's the big question. So I would go in to my prenatal checkups and when she got big enough for them to start checking the position, they would just, you know, feel around and say, okay, there's her spine. It feels like her head is down. Those are her feet. And they were just super quick checkups. And and I would go home and sort of be feeling like, yes, that's definitely her spine. Definitely feel her feet over there. And there was something round, like down by my pelvis, but at the same time, there was like this big bulge underneath my ribs that would move in a way that like, if that were her butt, it would just not move that way. Um, And so I never really understood how she was head down, even when they were saying that they were pretty confident that she was just because, you know, as I would go throughout my day, it just, it just didn't feel that way, even though I didn't know what to feel for. So I just figured I just was, I had no idea what I was doing and um, whatever. And then at 36 and a half weeks, I went in and they just do a routine ultrasound. And I was telling the midwife, like, I'm not convinced that, you know, she's in a, in a head down position because it just feels weird to me. And she was feeling a little more closely after I said that. And she was like, yeah, you know, I think I'm not really sure either. <laughs> and so she did the ultrasound and and sure enough, she was breech. And so then it was just like, it was pretty late at that point. It was 36 and a half weeks. And the longer you wait, the more difficult it is to get them to turn. 
So I sort of just went into kind of full on panic mode to think about what my options were. Um, and the midwife sat us down and she was really great and sort of did her spiel on breech births. And, and she mentioned that there were two people in Atlanta that did vaginal breech births. And both my husband and I were like, oh, no, we, we don't want to do that. That's dangerous, right? <laughs> um, I, I think we don't really know anything about it, but nobody does it. So it must be dangerous. And she was like, well, you know, you can talk to, you know, one of the docs that does it and see what they say. Um, if we were to stay at the birth center, we would have basically been um, just scheduled for a C-section at their partnering hospital. And they would have been able to be in the room and do the um, family-centered cesareans that they do, which, you know, if I were to have a cesarean, I definitely wanted it to be with them. So that's where we were. And it was just kind of trying to figure out if I wanted to just try to get her to turn by doing things like spinning babies and laying upside down on the ironing board mm -hmm. or try an external cephalic version, which is another thing. <laughs> Let, um, let's talk about that other thing because yeah. I had one of those other things. So you did. I did. Okay. So I want us to talk about that. We had a similar situation in that my daughter was always head up. She was kind of squirmy and then but around the same thing 35 weeks she was still head up and still head up and my midwife suggested hey how about a version I didn't get the option or, or there wasn't the conversation about there are these doctors that do breach it was more of well she needs to flip <laughs> or you have right. a cesarean yeah right so the version I had some sort of conflicting information about it because my husband was in medical school and he had seen some versions and the ones that he had seen were basically like mom was term and she was breech and they were going to try to do a version. And if the version wasn't successful, she immediately went to C-section. So it was all done in the OR on the day the baby was born, regardless of, you know, if, if the version was successful, they would induce and try and um, have a vaginal or or they would just go straight to C-section. But the version I tried was with uh, one of the two doctors that does vaginal breech births. And he was a private practitioner who had privileges in the big academic hospital in Atlanta. And he would try versions just in his office. So he was very conservative with you know, when he, he wouldn't try to push anything where he felt like it could um, rupture the sack or anything like that. So he, I went into his office um, originally thinking I would just try for the version. And if it wasn't successful, regardless of, of the outcome, would go back to the birth center. But he, he felt around and was like, this kid is just totally stuck in your pelvis. There's no way she's turning. <laughs> she was like way wedged in there. And he knew that, you know, there, he could push a little bit, but there was no way that she was going to turn. And I think that that's one of those things with aversion, similar to the art of breach. I find that the providers that do them more have more success, right? And so the one that I had was because she was always head up, it, I think we ended up doing it at 36 or 37 weeks. And it was by an OB who did them often, so had quite a high success rate for version. I think it was like 60%. And yeah, right. And we went, it was at the hospital, but not in the OR, just in a regular room. And there was the ultrasound just to keep making sure to be able to see everything and fetal heart rate monitors to make sure that you could hear the heartbeat and, and see how she was doing. And, and I did not. I wasn't offered an epidural. Well, no, I was offered an epidural. I didn't want it. I figured, this is fine. Let's just do this. And they, he did it. And she turned 360. Like, he pushed her a oh, bit. No. Oh, no. <laughs> no, baby, go back. Oh. And so he was like, I have never seen this before, of course. And so oh. once she settled, they did it the other way. Um, uh -huh. and then she did stay and, and then I walked out, I went home and she stayed head down until she was born. She was late a week. So she was at 41 weeks. So, uh, you know, this idea of like, if you have it, let's induce. Yeah. Yeah. I just went home and yeah. was fine. You know, she stayed yeah. down for yeah. all that. So it's very 
it, there is no one way. I think no. is the important takeaway yep. there. Yeah. Yep. 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 So yeah. he was like, yeah, she's in there. We're not doing this. Yeah. So he, and he was the one that convinced me to do vaginal breech birth or actually his RN that worked with him that our first appointment was with. She was saying, I, I was like, you know, I'm open to talking about it, but I just didn't think they happen that often. And she was like, they happen all the time. And he had strict criteria that he wanted met in order to try a vaginal breach. So he wanted me to go in and get an ultrasound at the hospital to look at her head to abdomen ratio, because my understanding is that the major risk with breach is the head is the biggest part of the baby. And so if the head comes out, then then everything else can come out. And so if you're, you're head first, you're good. Nothing will get stuck partway out. And if they're breached, then you might be able to get the torso out. But if the head is that much bigger than the torso, then the head can get stuck. And that's where um, you can run into some problems. There are some other things too, but this is my general understanding of sort of the major risk of of vaginal breech births. So um, we got an ultrasound and her head to abdomen ratio was about 1.1, which is his cutoff for trying a vaginal breech. And just after talking with him, you know, it, it seems like he was, he has done lots and lots of them. He's like, you know, in his mid seventies, he's been practicing for a long, long time. And I just, I felt very comfortable with him and he just was very confident in my ability to do it, which I think was the big difference in sort of the way he treated me and how I, my fear of giving birth in that hospital was, you know, that I would be a patient told what to do and he was very much like, you know, I'm not going to do this. You are going to do this. This is your birth and you can do it. And that made a huge difference for me. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. Because this meant the, the, there was the not only the switching providers, but also switching facilities. Because right, if you went right. with him, it was to the hospital. Yeah. And and it was, there was a hospital that my husband has rotated through And this isn't, you know, anything against the hospital, but it was just a very different environment from the one that I sort of imagined delivering my daughter in. Just, you know, it's very fast paced. (laughs) It's very geared towards higher risk pregnancies, which, of course, because I was having a breach, I was considered a higher risk pregnancy at that point. But it you know, it was really nice to to have a provider who had privileges in the hospital, but he is known for doing things his own way. Like I had a lot of friends that had worked with him during their rotations on uh, the ob floor. And they said, you know, everyone knows that like, if it's one of his patients, you don't do the vaginal checks every hour, you know, you can have cameras in the room. He just has his own sort of set of rules and is very well respected and so that made me feel much more at ease and it seems like he practices a bit more of what the midwifery model of care and 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 not all people who practice midwifery model of care are midwives <laughs> and absolutely the other way right yeah it just we need yeah. a different name yeah. for it but yeah 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 and i find yeah. older obies do that yeah yeah, it was funny. You know, he he has elements of midwifery care and then he has elements that are like very like he is a big user of forceps <laughs> and not vacuum forceps because he's he's sort of learned that way and that's what he's comfortable with. And he didn't use forceps with me, but I think, you know, he doesn't have any problem sort of assisting women. And he it, he is very like you know, I, I can't let you push in any position you want. I need to be able to do the things that I need to be able to do. So, you know, he, he is certain, he was very different from the midwives that I worked with at the birth center, but at the same time, I still felt like he respected the process and the fact that this was my process and not his, if that makes sense. Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns, and sometimes I find that investing gets put off because it doesn't seem urgent or because with our busy lives, we may not have the time to research and manage said investments, which is why I so appreciate that Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future and that you don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. 
In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. So, for example, I take advantage of Acorn's roundup feature where they round up the purchase amounts I make in my linked account to the nearest dollar, and then they automatically transfer that to my invest account portfolio. Also, Acorns can recommend an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. For me, that's easy-peasy investing. Head to acorns.com slash birthful or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Client testimonial may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com slash birthful. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC Acorns is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorn Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You've taken gorgeous photos of your baby or your kids, and then when you want to share them, it is a pain either trying to find the photos or figuring out the group text that they should go to, and then also remembering that, say, Aunt Helen only does email, so you need to send her image separately. Or like in my case, where my husband is a photographer who takes magnificent photos that I rarely actually get to see because they live on his phone or end up scattered in text messages that I can't easily find. Enter the Family Album app, which was created to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with your loved ones. Basically, it's a personal space for your family's memories without third-party ads or unwanted eyes and with a bunch of fabulous features. It automatically sorts photos and videos by month, allowing you to swipe back in time and easily see how your child has grown. And you can also order eight photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. The Family Album app also has unlimited storage. Plus, it's totally free. Yup, no more worrying about running out of space or being bombarded by third-party ads. So, to all the parents out there still trying to use other messaging apps for your kids' photos, level up your family photo game for free and securely with the Family Album photo sharing app. Head over to the App Store today, search Family Album, all in one word, and download the app to start creating your shared photo legacy. When did you decide, okay, we're going to, we're all in, we're doing breach? I think just having the conversation with him and his RN that made it clear that he knew what to do and he was confident that it could work given, you know, that I met these, these particular criteria um, or that it was at least safe to try. And the fact that that he has his own way of doing things in the hospital. Does he have a backup? Like, what if he wasn't available? He does not. He is an insane person. So he is his own. He's the only person in his practice. He has never taken a vacation day. He works seven days a week, all hours. I, I don't know how he does it, but he seems to do it. He, he's he's actually really well known. He's an Orthodox Jew and he's delivered pretty much the entire Orthodox Jewish population in Atlanta. And women travel from New York City to deliver with him because he is sort of so good at what he does. And he's really well known for VBACs as well. And so he you know, partly is is really well depressed within uh, his religious community, but also um, with women that are seeking other VBACs or, or vaginal breach. It's sort of amazing. Well, I hope that he's mentoring somebody so that all that knowledge doesn't get. He is, yeah. 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 So he's big. He works with all of the residents that come through. And so he always has, a, you know, a big team of people that he's teaching for every birth. And so hopefully he will pass on some of this knowledge and skill set to to the next generation in that hospital. So you decided you were going to do this breach procedure with this doctor. And then you talked to him, all of that, The ver- you know, went in for a version. He's like, nope, this is not, I don't feel comfortable doing this. However, let's do a breach. So that was around, what, 37 weeks? 30- yeah, about 37. Yeah, almost 38 weeks. Okay. And then you went home and what happened? 
So we went home and just waited. And then at 39 weeks and one day, I went into labor. So that was, it was, uh, let's see, the night, yeah, exactly at 39 weeks that night, I started having just sort of some stomach pain while I was sleeping. And I was in and out of sleep. And for whatever reason, I decided in my head that they were gas pains, not contractions. <laughs> and so I, because that's just what it felt like to me for some, I thought that contractions would feel different. And so I was thinking like, oh, I'm just constipated. <laughs> and so this that's so you can get out. more sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it worked. I was able to rest and, um, you know, go in and out of sleep because of that. And I'm so grateful because I had kept hearing, you know, the most important thing in early labor is to rest. And I kept thinking like, once I know I'm in labor, I am not going to be able to rest. There's just no way. So I'm really glad that I just had no idea that I was in labor. And this went into the morning. And then around seven in the morning, I woke my husband up and I was like, we have to take the dog for a walk. I need to see if I can walk through this. And so we start walking and I'm able to kind of walk through these pains and I was like, yeah, these are, you know, this is definitely just gas pain. This isn't labor. And I was saying to him, it's a, but it's good practice. It's good practice for when I'm actually in labor. And he was like, I'm really not convinced that you're not just in labor. <laughs> and so this went on throughout the morning. And then I started timing them, these pains, just to see what the pattern was. And sure enough, they were coming like every three to four minutes and lasting about 60 seconds. So, so a good pattern, like what what time of day? <laughs> what time of day are we talking about here? <laughs> so this was like eleven in the morning. Yeah, so I had you know started having the beginnings of these pains probably about one in the morning, and then by eleven it was like a very consistent pattern. And we called the doctor, and he said to come in. And our friend came over who was sort of, she, she's not a doula. She's had some doula training, but she was sort of act serving as my doula type person. So she came over and we all went to the hospital together and they brought me into triage and checked me and I was seven centimeters dilated and 90% effaced. Whoa. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was pretty far along for not especially for not having realized that I was really in labor. Those gas pains, man. Yeah, those gas pains. They were some intense gas pains. But by the, I mean, before they checked me, I was pretty I was pretty sure that this was the real thing. And then it was just, you know, uh, probably about that they admitted me around 11:30 noon. And then it was like probably 4ish hours of um just laboring in the hospital room. I had a peanut ball. I had music, which was probably the biggest thing for me that was helpful. I had a playlist that I had worked for months and months on of just sort of music that was nostalgic for me. I would really only recommend music to people, I think, that like have not not like just find whatever music you think will be peaceful, but music that like it can be you know, rock music or whatever, but just something that is grounding and comforting and you have positive associations with. So I had a whole playlist full of, of that. And it was, it was just so helpful for keeping me calm through the contractions. And I think just being able to stay calm was so helpful for keeping the pain um, manageable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so where things was just slowly progressing? Yeah. yeah I mean, n- yeah, not, not so slowly progressing. So, I mean, after a few hours, I was fully dilated around maybe four o'clock and ready to start pushing, but my bag hadn't broken. So the doc had me just try like a small push to see if it would rupture on its own, which it did. So I pushed once and it ruptured and then contractions got way more intense. And he uses paracervical blocks a lot. He's the only person in the hospital that does them. So what are those? Yeah. So that is a long needle that just, you get one injection on each side of the cervix and it just uh, is like a local anesthetic that numbs the cervical pain, but you can still walk. You can still feel all the pressure for pushing. Um, And it just takes, it takes the edge off of contractions. But when you're pushing, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for feeling all of the pressure and the ring of fire and all of that stuff. So he mentioned that as a possibility. And just because I wasn't going to be able 
to move around while pushing because I had to be in the OR to push. Um, the hospital won't, if it's a vaginal breach, won't let you deliver in the regular hospital room. You have to deliver in the OR. And the doc wanted me to be on my back to be able so that he could maneuver the baby as she came out, which is, I think, pretty, pretty important for vaginal breach births. So because I wasn't, you know, it had gotten a lot more painful and I hadn't started the pushing phase yet, I decided to go for the paracervical block just to take the edge off. And it was amazing. I really wish they were more commonly used because uh, it just made it so much more enjoyable. Um, And I could still feel everything for pushing. And, you know, I, I really felt good after getting that. So I definitely would Uh, encourage women to ask their providers about it. So tell me more about how the sensations change once you got it. Yeah. So I had my, the pain of my contractions was primarily in like my lower back and um, the sides of my pelvis. And when I got the paracervical block, those just went away. So I couldn't, when I, when I had a contraction, I felt tightening, but I didn't feel pain. So I feel sort of all the pressure in my stomach of her moving down the canal, but the cervix itself was not um, in pain during contractions. It's that's sort of the best way that I can explain it. Mm. And then, and then as she was coming down, I could feel her getting lower and lower. And then during pushing, I can feel her, I could feel all of the pressure for her coming out. So it's really just like a very local to the cervix. How long does it last? Does it wear off after a certain amount of time? I I think it starts to wear off after about an hour, one to two hours. So I, she was out within an hour of me getting the paracervical block because I got the block and then basically started pushing immediately. And she was out in about 45 minutes. So it was still, I mean, it's, it's hard to know if it was actually still having much of an effect when I was pushing her out, because at that point, it's not doing a whole lot during the like, you know, when they're really low down and just pushing out, because it's no longer really like the cervical pain you're feeling. Mm -hmm. So I, what I remember him telling me was, I think it was about one to two hours that it lasts. And it's a, a really long needle and getting it, getting the sort of injection and, and having it actually done was probably the most painful part of labor for me because the needle itself was really painful. But it was very, it was just very brief during a contraction. He went in and um, did a shot on each side. And so that really hurt, but it was only like, you know, 30 seconds and then it was over. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then are you in the OR by now or are you still in the labor room? Yeah, shortly after I got the injections, I pushed for maybe about 10 minutes till I can't say crowning because it wasn't her head, but her butt started <laughs> showing or close to showing. And then they rolled me into the OR really quickly. So I could just just push her out. And I was probably pushing for 20, 30 minutes in the OR. Yeah. Did you know that you were going to be wheeled over to the OR to do this? I didn't. I did not know that until I was in the hospital. Like once I was admitted, he told me that. And I think I don't think he meant to not tell me ahead of time. But just because I transferred to him so late, we didn't have the sort of time to have a lot of those conversations that he would typically have with people. And so that was a detail that I was not aware of. And I'm actually glad I wasn't aware of it because I think I would have been really upset about it ahead of time. But once it was there and it was happening and I could like feel her coming out, I didn't care if that I was in the OR at all. I was just really excited and happy. And I had had a great labor experience up until then and really enjoyed the whole process that like it it just didn't matter to me that, you know, everyone was in scrubs. (laughs) There was a whole team of people running all around. Were you able to still have your playlist play? I, yeah, my, my husband snuck the, I mean, I don't think it was like supposed to not be allowed, but he snuck the speaker in my pillow as we were rolling out of the hospital room into the OR so that nobody else in the room could really hear the music except for me. Cause it was just right under my head. And so I had the music there, but it was like very faint to everybody but me. Oh, that's so great. Good for him. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And was your friend slash doula able to go into the OR as well? She was. Yeah, he was. Normally it was only one person allowed in the OR at the time. But I think also because they were 
both medical students and very used to that environment, he was fine with letting both of them in. Mm -hmm. So then the actual birthing, how I'm curious, I mean, you haven't had another another baby, so I can't, you know, we can't compare like, well, how different was that or how did, but yeah, how was the experience of, of her actually coming out? Uh, it was good. I mean, it it wasn't, you know, like I felt all of the pressure. I hadn't, you know, had an epidural or anything so I could feel feel her come out, but it wasn't that painful for me. I, I think my body was just kind of ready to get her out. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was had been really worried about having to push on my back because I kept reading all these books about how that's not really the ideal birthing position. But I had no problem pushing her out that way. And you know, like you said, I don't have anything to compare it to, but it's still like pretty similar to what I would expect with a regular head down birth. You know, there was pressure and then a couple pushes and then she was out. <laughs> Yay. Did she get to come directly to your chest afterwards? Yeah, her umbilical cord was pretty short. Um, I don't know if that had any effect on whether or not she was breached, but like they had to, she, I was holding her basically on my stomach and I wanted to lift her up to my chest, but they had to wait for the placenta to come out because her umbilical cord like wouldn't reach up to my chest for whatever reason. So they, yeah, they waited to, to cut the cord and then, and then I was able to do skin to skin briefly. They did a, a quick newborn exam and then she came back to me. When did you get out of the OR? <laughs> uh, I got out of the OR pretty much immediately. So they, they did the quick newborn exam. They brought her to me. I don't know. We were probably in there 10, 15 minutes while they, stitched me up. I had a um, second degree perineal tear. And then once I was stitched up, I got to go back to the the regular hospital room. So that first hour, even though you were going from one place to another, was you guys mm -hmm. were still together quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. We were together the whole time, basically. Yeah. She, they never took her more than like five feet from me. And that was for a very, very brief period of time. So how were you feeling? I was feeling amazing. I felt yeah, I felt really good. It was such a like, such a high. <laughs> um, there's nothing really quite like it. And I was just so, so happy that I had been able to have the vaginal birth. I was really feeling really proud and relieved. And, you know, I, I had done so much reading and heard so many stories. I kept wondering what it was going to be like for me, if I was going to be able to handle the pain and everything. And I just felt really lucky that I had had you know, a, a really positive experience despite having to change to the hospital and everything like that. So just a lot of relief, a lot of happiness, um, a lot of excitement. What would you say was the hardest part of this whole process? I, I think, you know, going into it, feeling like it was, I had had a really easy pregnancy and um, everything was going really smoothly. And then all of a sudden having to switch to the hospital that I had been trying to get out of and to a male OB-GYN, which I never thought I would use. <laughs> um, you know, I really wanted to birth with female midwives originally. And I think just sort of letting go of the idea that this process was under my control and, and learning to still try to feel positive and like it was still my birth and, and my experience despite these changes. Do you have some words for other people who are out there, you know, facing a similar situation? Yeah, I mean, so I think my experience with switching to having to switch to the hospital I struggled with similar issues when I had problems with breastfeeding, which is another sort of story um, where I expected things to go one way and they went another way. And, you know, I, I think probably my, my best, what I've learned myself is just to understand that there's so much variation in everyone's experience. And just because it's sort of different from the the traditional ideal birth that you sort of come up with in your head does not mean that it can't be a totally beautiful, incredible experience and, and exactly sort of what you imagined just in a 
you know, with slightly different lights and a slightly different team around you. And, you know, I, yeah, I think that it's, it's just important to know that it's, it's not the details that matter. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. And I, I completely agree in the sense that one of the things that I tend to do with my doula clients during prenatal is we, you know, we do the birth plan and we go through all that process, but even more important, one of the exercises we go through is, and I ask this of both the birthing person and their partner, of to give me three words of how they want to feel during the experience. And then we talk about what ways, what are some ways we can get them to go back to feeling that way if things aren't going as they'd like. And because at the end, it's how you feel how you're treated, how, you know, that's what you're going to remember of the experience more than, oh, I I, I was in this room or the other room or I got in the tub or I didn't. Right. Exactly. Yep. Was there any other part of your story that you wanted to make sure we got to that we didn't? Yes. So one of the other major things I, I did want to talk about was the breastfeeding piece, just because that was actually you know, you asked me what the hardest part about everything was. And if you're including postpartum in that, that would be by and large the hardest part of all of this for me. So when my daughter was born, she was born hungry (laughs) and she latched immediately, um, which was really exciting. And I think I was just so enthusiastic about that. I was happy to just kind of let her hang out for as long as she wanted. And her latch was just slightly shallow. And I think also just because I wasn't used to it, she ended up staying on for like six hours without really much of a break. And I ended up having a lot of nipple damage because of that. Um, I was had cracking and bleeding and I did not have a lactation consultant uh, work with me right away. They didn't come in until the, the next day after she was born. Um, And by that point, I was like pretty badly injured and they were able to sort of deepen her latch just enough that it didn't hurt after sort of the initial latch. But I was I had so much damage done at that point that I really needed a break to let my nipples heal without having to feed her every, you know, two to three hours as, as you do for newborns. So what ended up happening was I went to a lot of lactation consultant appointments over the next couple weeks and saw yeah five different lactation consultants. And they had me go to exclusive pumping in order to let my nipples heal and then give her what I could pump and then supplement with formula. And the pump wasn't properly fitted for me. Um, and so it wasn't efficiently extracting milk. Um, and I got mastitis. And... I ended up never really being able to build up my supply the way I needed to because of all these various barriers. And she was sort of getting more and more used to formula and we were having to feed her more and more. I also tried the supplemental nutrition system where there was a tube from a bottle of formula that went and one one end was in a bottle and the other end was attached to my nipple and she would breastfeed, but she would basically mostly just get formula. Um, so she would still down her full two ounces of formula without actually getting much from me. And so it just ended up being a situation where I ended up having to exclusively formula feed her because I just kind of dried up after, oh gosh, two and a half, three weeks after she was born. And so that was, I think, the the hardest part for me because I was really sort of counting on breastfeeding as being a huge part of my bonding experience with my baby and was really looking forward to it. I, you know, had that was the one part of all the books I read that I skipped was the formula part because I was like, I know breastfeeding is hard, but I'll do it. So I don't need to read this. And and so that was a huge huge emotional adjustment and and challenge for me during the first month was sort of coming to terms with that. I can totally hear and and appreciate that this was very emotionally difficult because yeah, breastfeeding is like the biggest second hurdle that and sleep, right? But um <laughs> is the hurdle of that we think oh it's just going to happen and it would just happen if 
we were living in conditions that supported that biology. You know, like out and, and sleeping all together and didn't have to go to work and, you know, just with our baby. And we would see breastfeeding happening around us all the time. And we would have people around us go like, oh, no, wait, let's scoot this baby in. But we don't. So there's a gap there and it doesn't just flow. But you were counting on this to be part of a bonding experience. How were you able to shift that? And what were other ways that were helpful to bond with your child? Yeah, I love that question. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, for me, I think a big part of what helped me through it was also was understanding just the science of breastfeeding and what the studies show, because she happened to be born right before breastfeeding month kicked in. And so every morning I would get like an email talking about how breastfeeding is so much better than formula feeding, (laughs) which was not fun when I was going through that. And so I just sort of went back to the original studies and, and this is not at all to say that breastfeeding isn't great, but to realize that formula feeding your child is, is not going to automatically make them at super high risk of, you know, all of these things that they say that breastfeeding improves. So, you know, obesity and all of this stuff, there are lots and lots of studies showing great benefits of breastfeeding for, you know, ear infections and allergies and all of that stuff. But, but it's such a small relative risk that it doesn't mean that your baby is not going to be a perfect, happy, healthy baby if they are formula fed. And so that was just a really good resource for me to, to realize that, you know, my child was, was not going to be at a huge disadvantage just because she was formula fed. So right. that was a big thing. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of guilt associated with that. And, and, and it's, I think it's a, just how you were talking initially about Ina May's book and Pam England's book. Like it's not intentional, you know, biologically breastfeeding provides all these other things, but that doesn't mean if you don't get it, that we're not resilient beings and able to adapt and there's so much that goes into it and epigenetics and microbiome and other bonding relations like yeah it would have been better if she got breast milk and I've, I I feel like confident saying that not to guilt you into it but because yeah, I had no, a very similar experience with my child and I ended up exclusively pumping which was the worst yeah, yeah the yeah. worst <laughs> for months and I and and my cutoff was at six months. I was like, okay, when she started eating salads, I was like, okay, I'm done. We're done. Yeah. This is my board, totally. my, my boundary. This is Absolutely. as far as I'm going to go. So yeah, I can totally appreciate all the feelings that come with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you're asking about sort of other ways of, of bonding with her. And I think for me, you know, I was, I was having trouble bonding with her when I, even when I was breastfeeding, because I was in so much pain and we were doing this crazy thing where I would try and breastfeed. And then my husband would give her a bottle while I pumped every two to three hours around the clock. And I just was either pumping or breastfeeding all day long. Like I never got a break. And that was just, that was so difficult. And it really interfered with my ability to bond with her because I just couldn't enjoy any time with her because I just felt like I was sort of a, a dairy cow and, you know, and then I, my supply was just going down and down and down. So every time I would pump, I would see the volume decrease and that was, was just so depressing. And so I think, you know, just being able to switch to the bottle, even though I felt really guilty, but at least that gave that freed up time where I could just like look at my child and be like, Oh, look at this, you know, beautiful child that I made. And, and that in itself, just having the time to be able to do that and the freedom to do that made a huge difference Mm. in being able to bond with her. Oh, absolutely. It's, it is so tough. It is so emotional. The whole thing. What have been three sanity savers for you? Oh, just getting outside, I think was the biggest thing. So I mean, that kind of went hand in hand with the carrier, but um, like we went camping and I think I was really nervous about that just because I felt like we shouldn't be camping with a two month old, but we just did it and it went great. She like slept through the night in the tent better than she sleeps at home. And, um, you know, we just did the things that we needed to do and, you know, worked her into it. And I am 
so grateful that we took that risk at a young age because I feel like the older they get, the more into a routine you get and the more scary it is to break that routine. I'm so glad you had that experience because, yeah, during those first three months, they're way more portable and fall asleep more, you know, anywhere easier than they do when they get older and start being more mobile. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I think just, you know, taking that time to get out when they're that age is so important. So I think, yeah, I mean, that's been the biggest thing. Getting outside has been a huge help for mental health. Um, another thing is family visiting, coming and visiting and helping. I'm a person that really likes to have full control of what I'm doing and my house. And, you know, I, I love having family come to visit, but I like oftentimes want things done sort of my way and whatever. And the idea of having a lot of family come in to help was very overwhelming to me when I was pregnant. Cause I just, I was like, well, what if, you know, I think I'm just going to want to bond with the baby and, you know, just, and, you know, do vacuuming my way and do dishes my way or whatever. But especially with the breastfeeding struggles, like it was such a lifesaver to have people around. So I think, you know, not being afraid to take people up on their offers, like my mother-in-law kept saying, you know, I'm happy to come down anytime you want and, you know, just let me know and I'll fly down, which was so nice of her. And, it got to a point where I was like, yeah, actually, can you come down like tomorrow? <laughs> and she did. She came, she had just been there like the last week, but she got right back on a plane and came down for like five days when we were sort of in the middle of like the hardest of the breastfeeding stuff. And it was made all of the difference just to have that extra set of hands there to, you know, hold her and change her and help with dishes and buy food and stuff like that. So taking people up on on their help when they offer it, you know, and just relinquish control was a big thing. And then um, the other big thing was letting people bring food. <laughs> Instead of a baby registry with our friends here, they did a, a meal train and just having people stop in and say hi and having some social interaction, just really brief social interaction and, and having them bring food was was such a nice also just emotional relief you know that's more also a physical thing the food part but but also just being able to have those like little conversations with friends and see them sort of throughout those first few weeks was was huge yeah and without any obligation to it of like yay thanks for the food bye (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and you know they they knew that that's what you know they were here to drop off the food they talked quickly and then you know they were on their way and and it was that was great Well, thank you so much, Anya, for doing this today. It was so good talking to you. Oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. I really enjoyed your podcast all through pregnancy. And so it's it's so fun to to be able to share my story with you. And um, I really appreciate all that you do for for women in, in birth and their experience and all birth workers. So thank you. That was research analyst Anya Cutler, who studies health disparities in marginalized populations, effective communication of scientific findings and uncertainty to the general public, and colorful data visualization. Since we spoke, Anya has had a second daughter, so big congratulations to her. If you want to connect with us, the best way is to jump over to our Instagram account at Birthful Podcast and share your thoughts on the many questions that we post. Or you could also take a screenshot of this episode right now if you're not driving and then post it to your stories, sharing your biggest takeaway from the episode. Don't forget to tag at Birthful Podcast so we can see it and amplify it. You can find the in-depth show notes and transcript of this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about my birth and postpartum preparation classes and download your free postpartum preparation plan. Also, if you find that the podcast is an invaluable research for you, the best way to support us is by taking any one of those prenatal classes I just mentioned, doing one of my doula workshops, or trying out some of the wonderful products made by our sponsors. This is really what allows us to continue doing this work. Birthful is created and produced by me, Adriana Lozada, with production assistance from Asia Plotty. Thank you so very much for listening to and sharing Birthful. Be sure to follow us on GoodPod, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and everywhere you listen. And then come back for more ways to inform your intuition.
Hey, Mighty One. Did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know. 